podcast starts. Hello everyone and welcome back to Another Podcast Starts, a show which talks about horror, cinema and anything related that takes the interest of my wonderful co-hosts or myself. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan in Greater Manchester, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by... Stella Gaynor, also in Manchester. And also... Kirsty Warrow in Shropshire. That's fantastic. It's been a couple of weeks since we've all been together on the podcast, and this week we're going to be talking about the movies that frightened us the most. But before we get into that main discussion, let's just take a moment to catch up. How are you both doing? I'm good. Good, yeah, good, thanks. Wonderful. Have we got any news or things that are making us happy from either the world of horror or just the world of life in general? I'm very happy to hear that um, there's a Scream 5 in the making. Yes! Yes, I was delighted to hear that, yeah. Um, I think the news has been around for a few weeks, but somehow I've missed it. Um, And... I was really pleased when I heard that, because uh, obviously the, the previous four Scream films, which we've, we've touched on in this podcast before, Stella, because yeah. I know that you're very, very fond of Scream. I am. Um, and the previous four were all directed by Wes Craven, who sadly passed away yeah. five years ago. So who's going to direct the new one? Well, um, I'm afraid I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but it's the team, the writing and directing team behind Ready or Not which was one of my favourite horror movies of last year. And I think it's a really good fit for it because that movie is funny, ingenious and extremely violent. So, that... Yeah, I think it, it, it bodes well, I think. So I'm very excited. Yeah, and also they've confirmed that Nev Campbell and yeah. David Arquette are back as well. Yeah. Um, no confirmation yet on Courtney Cox, but um, I'm crossing my fingers for that. Yeah, now. me too. So yeah, so that was that's a great piece of news. Um, even when film production actually restarts mm. safely, that's something to look forward to. Um, how about you, Kirsty? How's life uh, and things? Um, I, yeah, I've got a couple of couple of uh, things to talk about. One horror, one not. Well, it might be horror. I don't know yet. Um, so <laughs> um, okay. there has been um, some kind of gentle building speculation on the interwebs um, that uh, Hannibal might be being primed for a fourth season um, uh, on Netflix. Netflix in the US now have... I understand the rights were certainly kind of showing um, seasons one to three. Um, and Brian Fuller, the creator, and kind of places like Nerdist are um, together with Netflix doing kind of things like um, online rewatch parties um, and things like that. So the kind of the fan community of Hannibals, who are affectionately known as Fanables, which of course I am one, um, <laughs> are very getting Wonderful quite name. excited. Yes, right. Um, quite excited about the prospect of a fourth season. Um, so I'm keeping an eye on that. Um, the other potential horror news is that um, my husband, uh, Sven, has always been a bearded person. Um, and his beard is is very large at this point, obviously, because of uh, the restrictions around lockdown. Um, and so he's decided, um, this has been brewing for a while, that he's going to shave it all off for uh, charity. He's doing it... Um, uh, to raise money for NHS charities together, um, Stonewall and also uh, Black Lives Matter UK. Um, so, Dan, can you, if I share the link, can you share it via our Twitter? So if Absolutely. anybody wants to to, um, 
to donate, um, they can do. There was also a video um, where you will see the length of my husband's beard currently. Um, so the potential horror is I've never actually seen his chin <laughs> in 15 years. <laughs> so, wow. you know, uh, yeah, exactly. So, well, um, I, so who I knows what's under there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did see that Sven had written that on yeah. the blurb but i thought that was a joke i no, thought no. you must have seen it at some point no, <laughs> okay no genuinely there's always been some level of beard on on upon his his lower face so um <laughs> i've never seen him clean shaven so that'll be interesting that's wow. amazing <laughs> that's... <laughs> can we can we run a book on what we think's under there like 10 to 1 a tattoo 50 to 1 a smaller face like <laughs> yeah <laughs> well yeah I mean it certainly is going to all be documented um, and shared on social media the whole removal and he's also taking requests of you know kind of uh, you know kind of beard or moustache styles you know um, sort of in the interim as he's taking it down to, to oh, a yeah, clean face oh yeah like a comedy beard yeah. beard um Album, I guess. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, like, handlebar moustache, yeah. for example. Sideys. He, he he has already though ruled out any, you know, him the possibility of him doing a Hitler. Yeah, well, that's definitely. Right. Not I was going to suggest that, but oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> He's vetoed that already. <laughs> cool. It's, so it's it's going to be filmed the actual yes. de bearding. Yeah. So I hope that someone, um, possibly me. It's going to be able to turn the footage upside down and dub on the Rolling Stones music, so it kind of looks like the start of Full Metal Jacket, where they're all having their heads shaved. Yeah, Dan, uh, that, the job is yours, yeah. mate. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've volunteered for that one, haven't I? You can have the permission um, to just immediately lift that footage and then add that music. And right. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Um, now, that's a, a great bit of news, like you say. It, it's There's a potential bit of horror there, but a wonderful <laughs> set of causes yes. that he's chosen. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll put that out on our Twitter because it's, it's well worth supporting. Oh, nice one, Kirsty. Thank so, you. Uh, all in all, a good bit of uh, news for the week. Um, quite exciting. So that means now it's time for us to steal ourselves and confront the most frightening films we've ever seen. Um, and we're going to discuss them. Obviously, all three of us have chosen two films each. We've had to narrow it down to the two most frightening films, which has been quite difficult for me, um, and I'm sure it was difficult for you too. And we're going to discuss <laughs> them in order of the ages that we were when we watched them, because I think or I'm interested in discussing how much of an effect... Uh, one's memory of being scared when one was at a younger age kind of follows through. Um, and therefore, for that reason, uh, we're going to start with Stella's Choice, which is a, a, a film that I know, I'm pretty sure, that Kirsty and I also yeah. will have seen at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, Stella, take it away. Right then, Ghost Watch. So. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Well, the thing with Ghostwatch is, first of all, I was very young. I was 11, I think. And it was a BBC, essentially, made-for-TV movie in the style of a mockumentary. Um, so they were going to sit outside Britain's most haunted house and they had Craig Charles outside the house with the camera team going in with Sarah Green and uh, Michael Parkinson in the studio. So it felt a bit crime-watchy as well. Um, yes. Now... The thing is, 
the BBC did advertise it as a drama and it was also advertised on the front cover of the Radio Times that week that it was a drama. But when I sat down to watch it that night, because it was on on Halloween night that, that year, and uh, I didn't see the opening, you know, that when the, the introduction to a programme, and now you know, yes. BBC One starts EastEnders or whatever it is, I missed that introduction. So I turned it on at, say, maybe five past nine when the programme had already started, not really knowing that what I was watching was a piece of fiction. Anyway, so I sits down to watch it and off it goes and it's got these trusted presenters on it. I used to watch Sarah Green on Blue Peter and uh, and all I, the presenters are playing themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there was no there was no actors in there as such apart from well, I guess the family were actors. Anyway, so I was totally sucked in, completely believed it. The family are telling everyone, well, these are the happenings we've had in the house. The little girls have been woken up with scratches and they had some CCTV footage from inside the house of um, the pipes being clanged and the girls jumping out of bed because their uh, bedside lamp exploded. And it's going on and on and on and on and on. And Michael Parkinson sat there basically going, nah, that's not happening. And uh, the more it goes on, the more it started to think that you were seeing things that weren't actually there. So the bit that I remember the most sticking in my head was they show a piece of footage film CCTV reel from the house with the girls in bed. And as the girls turn their lights off, you can clearly see a figure by the curtain. And in the studio, Michael Parkinson and and the doctor, I forget the doctor's name. The doctor's called, um, she's played by an actress called Gillian Bevan. Who, yeah. who has more recently been on on um, stage in Manchester, so I know some people who oh, know right. her slightly. And, uh, yeah, she's called Dr Lynn Pascoe. Lynn Pascoe, there we go. So, anyway, so they're watching this video footage of the girls going to bed. The girls get in bed, these two young girls in the one bedroom. They turn off their bedroom light, and there's clearly a figure stood by the curtains. So the doctor says, oh, there's a figure there. Can we Can we watch that back? And they roll the tape back, and you watch it again, and the figure's gone. So it's doing a very, very good job of for the audience going, well, was that really there? Did I actually see that? Sure. And so the show continues and it, and it escalates and it escalates and live things start happening. I'm, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers, even though you can't see them. <laughs> more and more live things starts happening. It gets worse and worse. The tension ramps up. Mr. Pipes appears in the studio behind the doctor's head as she plays a tape. And yeah, yes, it, everything does, just yeah. goes wild. Sarah Green gets dragged into a cupboard. Um, Michael Parkinson's wandering around like a Yorkshireman possessed, possessed at the end. And it's a <laughs> national seance over the airwaves. And then it all all the studio starts blowing up, doesn't it? Like all the lights yeah. break and the lights go off. And then it just ends. And yeah. I've I just sat there going, what the podcast is that? <laughs> so <laughs> scared. I was so, 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 so scared. Now, I was 11 at the time and... I was I was probably shouldn't have been watching it because I'm sure it was on after nine o'clock, and I did I think watch it. Think it was it on again. at nine. At nine, right? So yeah. no, I shouldn't have been watching it, should I? Let's be honest. Um, I did watch it again when I was older, in my early twenties, thinking, does does this still stand up? And it definitely does. And I realised that when I rewatched it, there was lots of stuff that I missed. So I didn't, when I watched it the first time round, I didn't notice Mr. Pipes in the studio. Yeah, And I also didn't really get that the end of it was saying this is a nationwide seance now. You know, the ghost has come through the threshold of the television and now it's in your house too. I didn't really see that when I was a kid. But when on rewatching it, I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> I'd have been, you know, 
in in hospital and um, when i watched it when i was older i was like gosh there's even more to this than 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 i originally saw and interestingly the bbc because they got in trouble and they had to have a press conference the next day and they were on kilroy as well which was hilarious the producer was on kilroy defending himself or herself right um, but the bbc have never repeated it they've never shown it again and it was only released on dvd not that long ago because the BBC were just like, oh, right, yeah, back up, back up, back up. We, we got in trouble up that. We're not going to do anything like that again. But nobody had seen that sort of TV, verite, TV, almost found footagey type stuff before, and certainly not on television. And then since then, it sparked loads of stuff, mm. like Most Haunted and, and, and whatnot. But, yeah, absolutely pooed my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I did when I watched that. And it's still scary now. I'm still not all right with it. For sure. And when you when you watch it now, do you mm-hmm. feel that you are scared by what you are seeing now, or it's the memory of how scared you were at eleven coming back? It's definitely a little bit of both because the the horror sequences of Mr. Pipes stood by the window, and then when there's all the cats meowling because didn't Mr. Pipes commit suicide and then get eaten by cats? Wasn't that the yes, story? Yes, yeah, um, that, yeah. So all the backstory the is brilliant, isn't it? The backstory is fabulous. But again, when I was 11, I didn't really notice any of that. It was just, there's a ghost on the TV. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the, the mewing of all the cats near the end and say Mr. Pipes by by the curtain still definitely give me the shivers now. Um, and say so now that I understand more of the story and more of the backstory, I think it still stands up and still... I find it an uncomfortable watch because it's so well put together. Some of the script's a bit clunky, but, you know, that's, what, 1992 for you. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, so did you guys I, watch it too? I certainly watched it on transmission uh, and taped mm-hmm. it, yeah. Um, Kirsty, did you see it when it was first I on? Yeah, I saw it when it was when it was live. I didn't tape it. Um, I think right. pr- principally because I didn't really have a sense of how important it was going to become if that makes sense yeah and i think course, yeah. you know like um dan did you have a copy you had a copy i did but um, you did yeah what what happened was i taped it uh, at the time and then um lent it to a friend who shall not be named it was you stella i know and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and never got it back so in 2002 when the bfi released the yeah. dvd of it I, I i bought that you and i were at uni kirsty and i I remember lending it to you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, think that's, you watched it with your household. Yeah. Did yeah. Kirsty give it back to you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. Yes, yes, I still have it. I have it now. Yeah. And, um, you can watch uh, it on and, YouTube. <laughs> it, well, well it, it kind of comes and goes from YouTube. Right. Um, I think that the BBC might take it down. Uh, it's all available on um, Learning on Screen on the box of broadcasts. Yeah. It's on there as well. Oh, right. I, didn't yeah. even, I don't even know what that is, to be honest. Uh, well, we a, do, uh, don't we, Stella? Yeah, we do. It's like it's <laughs> archive of TV stuff that's for right. educational purposes, but yeah, it's all on there. And I watched okay. it again on that recently and still was like, nope, no, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> all right, well, fair enough. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's been released by the BBC now, finally. Yeah. I, I think that the, the, the DVD release that is available now is actually released by the BBC, so they have started to acknowledge it. And also, I don't know if you remember... But a mm. few years ago, there was a, a short-lived kind of stream. It wasn't a streaming service. It was a, a website called the BBC Store where you could buy BBC 
things. It was like the BBC equivalent of iTunes, basically. You could yeah. buy programmes downloaded. And it was available on there together with a documentary called Ghost Watch Behind the Behind Curtains. Behind the Curtain, yeah. Um, which, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, the BBC store was a massive flop and um, was shut down within about a year, I think. And Ghost Watch Behind the Curtains has become completely unavailable because it was a low-budget uh, kind of crowdfunded documentary and, and they only had the ability to strike so many physical copies of it and there's nowhere that's streaming it now. But I have seen oh, it and it's really interesting. And you can buy a book called The Transcripts. I think that the, the people who made it found it cheaper rather than trying to re-release the DVD or get it um, produced again. They yeah. just released a book which is literally... The, the content of the DVD transcribed. Right. Um, so I, I I got that and read it, and then I found a copy of, of the thing. So that's that's really interesting, and I can't, I'm kind of hopeful that maybe both of those things will turn up on BritBox. Yeah, um, oh, that would be yeah. good. I mean, it so it's no. had the sort of same effect or problem, if you want to call it a problem, as War of the Worlds on the radio. Mm. Because people with that, with that, they they miss the beginning, saying this is a fiction, because they're switching over from one radio channel to the next, and then they're switching on sort of ten minutes in and going, oh, this is a news report. And if if you're yeah, not yeah. used to this idea of well, you know, the mockumentary or making it look like it's real, then people people eleven year old me just get taken in, and even having the phone in mm-hmm. on it and stuff, it was such a common and trusted TV formatted trope that they used a real phone number as well yeah. but it's the same phone the number that going live used 811 it yes one? it was <laughs> uh, and they had to have people manning the phone line yeah um in case people used it which they obviously did and the yeah. people on the other end of the phone line just said hello the tv series is, uh, the tv program is a fiction <laughs> but if you want to talk to me about your ghost experiences i'll listen um, <laughs> they they got thousands of calls like yeah. that apparently. Oh, so, it was just so they were, great. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I have to say, it was very nearly one of my choices. I think it's one of the most frightening things I've ever seen. Yeah, and I still watch mm-hmm. it again quite regularly. I think I only saw it a couple of years ago last. Um, yeah, can and I? It, and it's, can... Go on, Kirsty. Yeah, no, I just wanted to just to sort of develop Stella's point about the whole kind of, you know, connection between Ghostwatch and War with the Worlds. Um, mm. And it's, I think it's been interesting in, you know, kind of podcasting, how that um, kind of strategy for horror podcasting has become a kind of a thing, yeah. um, particularly in the kind of post-serial kind of yes. era. So yes. um, shows like, um, or podcasts like Limetown yeah. um, and Tannis do the same thing, um, but they don't... Or at least sort of Tannis definitely doesn't kind of go, hey, we're fiction, you know, it presents itself yeah. very, very seriously um, and and uses a lot of kind of real world contact points in terms of, you know, here are some things that have actually happened, some people have actually exist and then plugs the story into that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, you know, kind of really, you know, can kind of heighten that sense of it sort of being real and kind of and, and therefore scary. So yeah, it you know, gives it yeah. the authenticity yeah. that makes you buy into it completely yeah. and then and then there you are. You're you're you know, too scared to get up to go for a wee in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um I mean I haven't heard those podcasts but I did listen to a podcast called The Message which oh, did yes. that. Yeah. It took me three or four episodes to work out that it wasn't real. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, the, the message, message is very simple. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really, it's it's just one season of the message, but it's it's very effectively done, I think. Mm, but yeah, yeah. Lime Town and uh, Tannis are definitely, Tannis is um, more expansive. Um, 
Um, and I think Limetime's got two seasons at the moment. Okay. Interesting. Oh, I cool. do think that Ghostwatch is a great example of something which, in a way, you kind of have to do with ghost stories to make the most effective is strip away as much of a sense of the artifice and a sense of the yeah. unreal as possible. And, you know, um, going, going back to pre-technological media, you know, even writers of ghost stories like M.R. James would have to do that by saying, you know, this is not something... That, that they'd have a preface where the character would say, I discovered this story in some papers when I was searching... Um, mm-hmm. the the office of a professor friend or whatever. you know just something to kind of bring it a bit more near to factual reality rather than fiction and uh, and that yeah. Ghostwatch is a great example of that but I think the genre does need that um, which is why it's really good to know that the people are continuing to try and uh, engage different mediums into that yeah um, and uh, create that kind of effect. I would say that um, for anyone who's not seen Ghostwatch, it's one of the the greatest example of context being crucial. Mm-hmm. I think you've got to understand um, that uh, it was made when it was. Yeah. Uh, you've got to have a certain amount of understanding of what TV was like in 1992. Yeah. Because although it is a, a film, as we've said, it's like a TV movie, it was yeah. made as part of a strand of BBC One dramas called called Screen One. That, Screen and they were One, all, yeah. They were all essentially movies that would just happen to be on TV on a Sunday night. Um, but Ghostwatch obviously is one of those, but it goes out of its way to imitate yeah. factual TV broadcast, which had it been made by less committed or less um, intelligent people, mm-hmm. it might not have bothered to do things, simple things like not be shot on film, yeah. Uh, you know, not be made in in a studio, not employ. Uh, it might have done things like cast actors as the presenters instead of just getting presenters, things like that. You know, um, yeah. so I think you've got to kind of understand that to to get the most out of it. I did see it a few years ago at a screening uh, with an audience, and the writer Stephen Volt was was present, and he had to kind of do that put it into its context yeah um and i think that it's got to be in fully in context for you to even potentially be frightened by it i think if you don't have the correct contextual understanding of it it might just seem strange yeah um because tv itself has changed so much well there's um, ever since there's the odd bit of footage that i mean it was on youtube um there's also a Charlie Brooker sort of breakdown of Ghostwatch when he did uh, TV, How TV Ruins Your Life in that series yes, that he did. Yes. And he showed on that, and you can find his clip about Ghostwatch on YouTube, and he talked about how when the producers had to, were, on, were on Kilroy that week, um, Kilroy was a chat show, terrible thing that was on, um, <laughs> yeah. the audience member yes. in Kilroy who was having a go at them about Ghostwatch, they were saying something along the lines of you deliberately set out to trick the audience and it's like mm, did they they did tell you it was a drama <laughs> michael parkinson no. was on the cover of radio times going "Ooh, ghosts <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, was, it was like a specially created radio times cover shot i remember that really yeah. well um yeah i i think <laughs> it's a funny question about um i don't think they intended intended it to be um 
a hoax. A hoax, yeah, the word but hoax. I wonder how much of its effectiveness is down to the fact that some people did think it was real like you did. Mm. Um, I, I definitely did. I was kind of... I, I have this ability to be credulous, so I kind of knew it wasn't real but was wishing it was. And I think by 10 minutes into it, I I was just focused on it um, and, and I was in there. Um, and then when the credits came up at the end, I remember that I watched it with my mum and dad and they thought it was real. Right. Or or maybe they, they, they didn't, uh, but they thought it was tricking them or something. But I do remember that when the credits come up, came up at the end, they were both disgusted. It's like, that was rubbish. And, disgusted. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a lot of the attitude. Do you remember it was all over the newspapers? Yeah. Um, it was I, like I, I mean, the front page news on loads of the red tops, wasn't it? The next day, BBC right. hoax nation. Well, I do remember, <laughs> like on Monday morning, going to school, and on the you know on the school bus, and expecting everybody to be talking about it. And it's like, guys, did you see Sarah Green die on TV <laughs> on on Saturday night? And as I remember, none of them had watched it. They were all talking about the Big Breakfast instead, which had also just started. Uh, the the Channel Four morning program with Chris Evans, so um, not that Chris also Evans. quality TV though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, I would say that it's a great text to check out. I don't, I can't really recommend whether or not I think people will find it frightening because I think that context is so important. I have to say that, for instance, when I showed it to my nephew a few years later in about nineteen ninety seven. I provided fake context for him. I said, this is a real documentary, which I taped a few years ago. It's very interesting. And, and as he watched it, he got more and more alarmed and like and kept saying at repeated points, all right, I don't want to see any more. Can we stop now? And I would say, lying through my teeth, no, it's all right. I've seen it before. Nothing scary happens. How old was the nephew? <laughs> um, probably about eight so Done. <laughs> yeah so i'll take this moment to apologize to sam on the air um but at the end when the credits came up and it said written by stephen volk he went oh what oh. <laughs> he was so relieved and also a little bit disappointed in a way that it was not real so oh. um so there we go, that's Ghostwatch. I think yeah. it's a fascinating piece of work which we could talk about for ages, but we've got other films to get through. So yes. um, we'll move on to your first choice then, Kirsty. Mm-hmm. Event Horizon. A, <laughs> from just a few years later in the yeah. 90s, 1997's Event Horizon. Yes. So, Kirsty, how did you see this movie? Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> I think the thing to, to note about this one is that um, I was 17, um, so you can work out how old I am. Um, right. It was 97, um, and uh, I saw it at the cinema. Um, I had some free tickets. Um, so, I took my boyfriend at the time to see Event Horizon. I was also at the time staying at my mother's house house sitting for her and she was off in some far-flung place um so his house i was in a house a strange house alone and i decided that it was a good idea to go to see uh, a film where the tagline was uh infinite space infinite terror 
Oh, yeah. So I went to Event Horizon and I was also at the time working uh, in a cinema, the same cinema that I saw it in. Um, And a couple of weeks later, we actually got Event Horizon in. And so I had the pleasure of sort of having to watch it for work repeatedly. Right. Um, So I have to say, I probably saw it in that kind of in the... The, the time it came out, probably about 15 to 20 times. Wow. And I have wow. not seen it since. Um, <laughs> probably <laughs> don't need to. Yeah. yeah. Probably good. No, no. So, um, uh, yeah, so Event Horizon is one of those films that um, directed by um, Paul W.S. Anderson. Um, lots of people sort of regard it as being his finest film because, you know, the rest of his films have not been critically well received um it no. um didn't do terribly well at the time it came out it was made for a budget of about 60 million i think at the time um and only made about just under half that back and part of that apparently was to do with the fact they had to kind of bump the release of it because they realized paramount realized that um titanic was not going to be finished in time james cameron um <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah so they kind of they, they bumped it into the cinema earlier than they than than um anderson wanted it um so apparently the initial cut is much much longer than the one that was put into cinemas um well, the basic concept is it's a sci-fi horror. Um, Lawrence Fishburne, bless him, uh, is leading a kind of rescue mission to um, uh, somewhere near ne- Neptune to recover um, a spaceship with some, you know, kind of super, um, you know, kind of um, revolutionary space travel technology has disappeared um, and reappeared again sort of, I think, seven or eight years after its, uh, its disappearance. Um, and so they have to go and recover the crew craft he takes with him um dr weir played by sam neill um who is responsible for the technology that kind of drives this revolutionary um you know kind of mode or way of traveling across large um uh parts of space anyway they arrive there and of course terrible things have happened aboard the ship which is called the event horizon hence the title um and yes everything is very very bad from that point <laughs> onwards just very bad they, yes they take the you know the the um the fishburns crew um is you know kind of numerous um so that there can be you know creative and inventive ways for people to die um throughout the course of the film um it's very much a kind of haunted house narrative, but mm. in space. Um, and part of the reason yeah. why I just, oh, God. Come on, Okay, so, again, this is where it kind of gets po- a kind of personal thing. Is I, I, There's quite a lot of... Um, uh, eyes are quite important in terms of the kind of body horror of yeah. the film. And I really yes. don't like eyes or anything happening to eyes. And so the whole sort of third act relies quite a lot on people doing things to their eyes. Yeah. No. Um, and <laughs> there's also somebody um, who, because this is, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those people who go, oh, yeah, space, it'd be lovely to go there. No. Um, so somebody, <laughs> somebody, yeah, yeah, clearly would be awful um so you know somebody in an airlock that's also yeah Yeah, really slow oh gosh terrible yeah Yeah. not nice um it's kind of as a film sort of underpinned by the idea that the kind of the 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 
the event horizon has somehow traveled to hell and come back with some kind of demonic hellish um kind of presence that feeds on the kind of emotional psychological demons of each of the individual crew members um and you know kind of so there's a lot of it which is quite hypnotic and dreamlike these visions that the kind of the ship um creates for the crew um are quite terrifying um there is also um the use of um uh well they, when they arrive on the ship uh they find transmissions from the original crew oh the scary yeah. sos tape yes. type yes yeah so yeah. there's a there's a kind of yeah a tape that they yeah they get to see which and i've just in my notes as i was preparing for this this morning i've just put uh horror orgies <laughs> so yes. in, in that there are you know kind of just you know kind of dismemberments cannibalism all of that kind of stuff going on but i remember being particularly affected at the time the way in which that stuff is displayed on screen in that you get very very quick cuts of it yeah. it feels almost subliminal whereas yes. you you know when you watch it you don't think to yourself oh yeah i've seen that and i've re mm -hmm. you know i can recall that shot i remember exactly what i've seen it kind of you go, I know I've seen it, but my brain has now just st stored it somewhere in my subconscious for it to be, you know, kind of brought out in, you know, kind of dreams or nightmares later in on. In the middle of the night when yeah. you to go to yeah. the toilet. Yeah, I need exactly. a wink. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so having, having said that, there is... The, the one of the things that I kind of I found really interesting about the film, quite beguiling about it, is that I think it's actually quite a beautiful film. There are lots of really kind of careful consideration into how the you know kind of the um, ships are uh, well the event horizon itself. Um, so that was apparently the set design for that um, was based on. Um, uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. And there's a lots yes. of kind of religious um, symbolism um, in well, the, the ship itself the, is cruciform, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, and so. there's you know kind of lots of ideas about you know kind of sacrifice and so kind of ways in which it can be kind of read with a, a kind of Christian subtext. And obviously, the idea of hell is in there. And one of the, one of the things I remember well when I was at working at the cinema and watching the film is that I was sometimes in the projection room watching it coming off the film being projected and the watching the actual film because it was old obviously um yeah. the actual reel kind of coming off the projector and um one time i watched it i became aware that actually there's something really hypnotic in the way that the scenes are sequenced in terms of being kind of patterns of red green blue red green blue as they kind of you know as the sort of scenes came off the projector um onto the reel and so okay. That's I think when I when I watched it first couple of times I wasn't aware of that kind of pattern being developed but mm -hmm. you know as I was obviously the other side of the of the projector was able to see that happening um, so that that kind of intrigued me um, there's moment in the film. Um, that also kind of speaks to the aesthetics. It's Lawrence Fishman, iconic line. He says something like to another character, have you ever seen fire in zero gravity? Oh, it's yeah. beautiful. Um, oh, yeah. And then cue some, you know, at the time were quite, you know, um, convincing uh, special effects or visual effects rather um, of a man on fire in zero gravity. Um, mm. So the ending of the film as well not to spoil it kind of has one of those endings which i'm going to come back to when we talk about descent if where you don't get 
that sense of the happy ending, or at least it's a bit ambiguous. Yes. So I, I, I like kind of I like or horror stays with me. I think more when there's a you know a more dour, downbeat yeah. ending. Yeah, so like the end of Ghost yeah, Watch, everything's terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that because I think the final note in horror films is always really important. Yeah. And that sense of you know the in many films the you know the the sun comes up, it's a new dawn, and you know the final girl walks out of whatever wilderness she's been in, and she gets you know it's fine. Um, but where that sense of it, oh no, it's not, is is you know kind of like once you've been through an ordeal with a film to mm. have that sense of oh it's not actually over but we're letting you out anyway you've just got to sit with that you know kind of sense of lack of equilibrium restored um i was found really effective so um yeah, yeah so it's a, a now has now become a, a kind of a cult film despite it not being terribly well received at the time um and i understand that there's a television show in development all right this is really yeah yeah no, yeah yeah last year they announced that they were it was in development so where it is at the moment i don't well, quite know yeah. and how long oh, it yeah. might take to get to our screens i don't know but i would certainly be interested in yeah, revisiting definitely. the event horizon in a television form i think it would be interesting to see a, a long form version of event horizon because as you said kirsty the original film was meant to be much longer mm. and they don't have the option of releasing an extended version of the film because the original footage was not saved. Yeah. Everything right. that was uh, excised. So, um, and it, it's a really short and sharp movie. It's only, I think yeah. it is 90 minutes. Yeah, although it um, feels much longer when you're watching. Yeah, it does. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, wow. I, I mean, yeah, I, I do remember being very, I've seen it twice and I was very disturbed the first time. Um, uh, the second time I was, I, I was more kind of focusing on Sam Neill's ham. Uh, which is probably not slightly fair, but um, uh, uh, yeah. But it's a, you're, I agree entirely that it's a beautiful film. Um, that there's abundant disturbing ideas in it. Oh, I also at one point um, on VHS, which is the last time I watched it, I I, I attempted to slow down and frame by frame through yeah. the weird hell scenes. <laughs> Uh, just what, I just wanted to see what was there. Um, to be honest, it didn't make it much clearer. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> slowing it down, especially in VHS quality. But um, uh, but yeah, that, I, I'll tell you what, though. Th there are things about that movie that have stayed with me, even though I've not actually seen it for so long. I can hear the music um, still. Um, I remember finding the opening you know, scrawl at the start of the film, which sets up the backstory. Yeah. Just that is quite disturbing. It says, you know, um, the event horizon went missing just beyond the eighth planet Neptune. It is the worst space disaster on record. Yeah. Um, things like that. And um, and Fishburne is great. Um, he is. <laughs> He's always good, though. Yeah. And I think it's possibly the first of Sean Pertwee's many appearances in our film. I oh, yeah. don't think there's an earlier one. So, welcome, Sean. We'll probably <laughs> talk about him some more. There's some a guy um, mm. that I know through work, Dr. Dr. Sheldon Hall, who works as a lecturer at the Sheffield Hallam University. Yes, he did. Um, he's, <laughs> yes, we know him he's, too. He's in it. 
Yes, yes. we know that. <laughs> you know that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I just remember just now, I was like, Sheldon's yeah. in it. <laughs> yeah, no, he was, I didn't he know was you knew Sheldon. Yeah. Yeah, yes. he was our lecturer, and and um, he used to have a photo because he he played one of the crew of the Event Horizon. Yeah. So in theory, you see him in the the, the Hell flashbacks. Yeah. Maybe actually that was really why I slowed it down and frame yeah. by frame because I was trying to find Sheldon. <laughs> trying to get a um, gander at Sheldon. I yeah. couldn't really see him to be honest, um, but there was like a photo of him in the uniform with the whole cast of the crew of the Event Horizon yeah. in their uniforms. And that was on the wall of his office. It's in his office, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, ah, bless him, good old Sheldon. I do I like Sheldon. I'd see him fairly frequently now. So, do conferences at Hallam, horror conferences there. Oh, and, cool. uh, Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't go on about his Event Horizon starring role <laughs> very much, but you know, it always amuses me. <laughs> yeah. No, he was agreeably bashful about it bless him i had some good chats with him in the university refectory yeah. over the years he's a good one all right so i guess that means it's my turn it is um, so the film i'm going to choose is the blair witch project which i saw at the cinema in 1999 um I think it connects with Stella's choice because the main thing I remember thinking is this is the most, the nearest a film has come to making me feel like Ghostwatch made me feel. Interesting. Um, and and because it's a very similar format, really. So the Blair Witch Project, um, in case any listeners are unfamiliar with it, is um, a f- what we now call a found footage horror movie. And it's essentially three the story is that three film students went out to make a documentary in the woods around Burkittsville which is a fictional part of America mm-hmm. um, I can't remember what state it's meant to be in maybe oh it's Maryland I think um, and they went looking for this legendary witch the Blair Witch which has been associated with various incidents over the years um, they disappear into the woods and are never seen again but as the, um, uh, again, the disturbing opening backstory crawl that comes up on the screen says, a year later, their footage was found. And what you watch is an assembly of highlights, essentially, <laughs> of, of the footage they shot. It doesn't tell you who's supposed to have assembled it, but um, it's really interesting because it's what they were trying to make was a documentary, in theory. Um, so you... So in a way, you watch it in that spirit and the context of that is given to you by the opening scene setting blurb. However, unlike Ghostwatch, um, Blair Witch Project doesn't really have the ability to be accidentally mistaken for a real documentary, although it was in very early, in a very early stage of its yeah release because it had a website that purported that it was a a factual event Um, the producers did things like um, they altered the uh, IMDB biographies of all the actors in it who appeared under their own names and the IMD biographies said that they were they were now missing and things like that Um, so and certainly when the film was premiered at Cannes I think um, a lot of the 
uh, people who saw it for the very first time, not knowing what it was, thought that it was real. And it was uh, the kind of shock of that and the uh, and the word of mouth of that was really powerful in raising the profile of the movie. But I think by the time it got to the UK, I think obviously most people knew that it was a horror movie. Yeah, we knew uh, by the time it and, got here. And I think there was a, a distinct... A certain amount of disdain um, that it was trying to be a horror movie, but it didn't look or feel anything like a horror movie. And in fact, in that screening that where I saw it, I saw it in a double bill on a Sunday night, I think. A double bill with John Carpenter's Vampires, the other great <laughs> horror movie to come out in late 1999. And, um, and it was absolutely packed. Um... In, in this cinema, the Roxy in Oldham, it was completely oh, loaded with people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was not hugely well-received. In fact, I remember the most distinct thing I remember from that night, apart from the film itself, was the fact that there was one guy sitting a few rows in front of me who halfway through the film got up, walked to the middle of the auditorium, made V signs at the screen <laughs> and left. <laughs> Well, he needs to learn how to form an opinion. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I I think he knew exactly what he thought. Um, (laughs) I think he was being pretty unabashed. Um, (laughs) But I was was terrified and loved it um, and spent a good part of the the rest of the night and, in fact, the next few years talking with different friends about different um, reactions to it because it is a movie that provoked positive and negative reactions very strongly Mm. Um, and I think the thing which has made it work for me is that um, I felt that it was like Ghostwatch using the medium to create um, a reality that was subtle enough and free enough of artifice that I could slip into it and then really feel the escalating levels of panic that the characters on screen felt Um, and the quality of the performances in the film is something which has been debated over the years. Um, but I remember feeling that I was completely convinced by them. You know, the actors in the movie were not working from a script. It was essentially mm-hmm. improvised. They were just given kind of story beats they had to stick to. Um, and throughout the movie, as these characters wander into the woods and get more and more lost, the character, sorry, the performances become edgier and um, the mood of the characters, the interactions become more frayed um, and the level of anxiety starts to ramp up and I remember really feeling that and the movie builds up to an incredible climax I think. And again, loads of people were disappointed that you didn't see certain things that you might Mm -hmm. have been expecting to see in a regular horror movie. You know, there wasn't a visual monster that turned yeah. up at the end. We don't see um, the witch, do we? Well, I was trying to avoid saying that explicitly, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, or maybe you do. You know, Who knows? Well, well, but but whether you see it or not is not the point. The point is whether or not it's really there off camera, or if something else is going on. Mm. You know, it's about hysteria and things like that because a lot of the movie can be read as basically being a drama of hysteria in which characters who are isolated 
um, and lose hope start to um, you know become prey to their own imagine imaginations and things um, and how that affects them so therefore I think you could possibly argue that um, a lot of what happens maybe in their minds obviously they, they do do things like they they come on a house which they believe um, is from one of the stories of the witch and that's where the, the climax of the movie ends but whether it really was or whether it's just a random building that they found um, having said that you do see certain things in the house don't you I'm just thinking back to it so I've not watched the movie for 15 years I think I saw it I did watch it again um, I think at least twice once when it was on TV and once on DVD and I loved it both times what I actually loved even more was it has one of the best companion pieces of any movie which is the document another spoof documentary yeah. that they made called The Curse of the Blair Witch I yeah. think which which is a more conventional TV made for TV kind of talking heads documentary about the legends that are supposedly associated with the Blair Witch mm. um, and so that's kind of entirely the backstory for the movie um, and that's really chilling um, in its kind of understated way and like Ghostwatch it's very very accurate in the way that it apes kind of sensationalist TV documentary styles of the, the late 90s. Um, so, uh, yes, that's all, that's all that I feel like I want to say off the top of my head about the Blair Witch Project, but um, I, I don't think there's any other movie which has gone that far in kind of stripping away the artifice to enhance the fear. And I still find it enjoyable as a movie which is why I went back and watched it again because you know the early scenes of the movie which are like the comedy almost comedy scenes of the characters setting up for their trip out into the woods and things there's quite a lot of charming quiet character moments in there there's uh, the scenes where you actually you get to see shot sets of the I'm sorry sections of the documentary they aimed to make because one of the quite effective devices that the movie takes is that most of the movie is composed of the video footage of them just filming themselves as they go into the woods, which they wanted to use as kind of B-roll. But also, every now and then they'd stop and set up their film camera and yeah. shoot some black and white film footage interviewing a local or something like that or filling in a bit of the backstory. So we keep cutting to those things. And that's really nice. You know... The, there's a, a a world set up that's explored really wonderfully and gently, and um, uh, yeah. So therefore, I, I I do find it entertaining to go back to, um, because I, I love ghost stories, and basically I think it's a great ghost story. Mm. Um, that's the appeal there. Would either of you like to say anything about that movie? Well, I love it. It's definitely in one of my all-time favourite horror movies. Um, when I saw it, it had already the information had already got over here that it wasn't real. Mm. Um, but I went to go and watch it at the cinema. Thoroughly enjoyed the experience because I think for for me and I guess maybe for lots of people, I'd not seen anything like that before at all. All of the yeah. talking to the camera and switching between cameras and you know it, it seeming very <laughs> rough and ready. I'd never seen anything like that, and it was completely new to me and 
certainly myself and my friends who went to see it that night, you know, we we couldn't stop talking about it for days, for weeks afterwards. Um, and as soon as I could get a copy at home to have and to own and to keep watching and re-watching, I did. And I've seen it many, many times. And my husband has seen it once and has <laughs> absolutely point blank refused to ever watch it again. <laughs> so, you know, and, and he right. didn't watch it until... Uh, oh, a good ten years after its release, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm not watching that again." Then I, th- I think it was on TV not long ago, really, a couple of years ago, and I was like, "Oh, look, Blair Witch is on," and he's like, "No, <laughs> we're not having that." So, it's I think it 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 definitely absolutely does stand up and work as a really good scary horror movie. Oh, nice! I'm really yeah. glad to see that, and I've just had the thoughts as well that. It works as a kind of period piece, um, possibly, I think. No, absolutely. Unlike, unlike Ghostwatch, where mm. you have to have a, a strong knowledge of the context to really appreciate it, Blair Witch Project was kind of already a period piece when it came out because um, the footage is supposed to date from 1994, isn't it? And the text at the start of the movie tells you that straight away. So it, the whole thing is like a dusty archive document. Mm. Um, and and that and it's a dusty archive document about you know dusty legends and and vague uh, remembrances. So that's kind of yeah. appropriate to it. And I think in terms but, as well, but the, with the context is you've also got that sense of you know it fits absolutely perfectly in that time because it's the time that you know kind of video technology gets or the kind of prosumer kind of end of the market gets high quality yeah. enough to be able to kind of do that. St- kind of thing for a and and make it suitable for a big audience yeah um Mm. and you know and and you know it was so perfectly timed in terms of the use of the internet for marketing and that kind of question of the you know the kind of veracity of it um that yeah it was you know it just seems i mean it's it's I, i think it's it's a great horror film and and you know it kind of but it exists in this very very particular point doesn't it in kind of cinema history of that you know kind of um the the way in which kind of low budget filmmaking can um provide something slightly different than yeah. mainstream filmmaking i think yeah. yeah um for me there's what i just there's two moments that i think really really i remember that, that stand out for me in recalling the film and there's a bit early on in one of the kind of early montages when they're talking to the people of burkittsville about their legends and there's i think it's a like a parent i'm not sure if it's a mother or a father holding a child yeah. Yes. Oh, as they're telling the story, the child just goes to pieces in a way that seems completely genuine and kind of very, you know, there's something kind of very visceral about that, mm. you know, the kind of the, the response that the child has, where it's just kind of sets up the film as this is this is going to be terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then and the very the very final shot which you know okay fair enough as you, you alluded to we don't see necessarily anything and we don't get an answer to it, actually what's happening but the way in which the kind of final shot resolves the question of the kind of you know some of those stories yeah mm. and then just yeah, yeah. leaves it there i just thought mm-hmm. was it's such a kind of a brave ending not to offer more resolution you know, and just to just to kind of leave it hanging on a really powerful image, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And um, I'd just like to say, in addition to the documentary The Curse of the Blair Witch, another way in which the movie extended its legend uh, while still refusing to give clear answers about anything was a wonderful book that was released called The Blair Witch Project, a dossier. 
uh, which came out the same time as the movie or just after. And I remember reading that. And again, that's just exploring the backstory largely. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it's a fascinating, chilling... Um, uh, yeah, just excavation of the things that have happened around the legend and, and all the, the stuff about rust in par and, and that kind of thing. And it's it, it it's great. And all that stuff that's kind of hung around it just enhances the film, really, I think. Um, it's a shame that, that they don't seem to have found a way to extend it further into any further films, but I think maybe that's... I mean, I haven't seen... I think there are two sequels. There's two, yeah. I haven't seen either of them, um, and I don't really want to. Um, <laughs> and I think maybe I'd, I'd be interested in it in something like a book or something that kind of extends the backstory or just explores it in in a new way. But I'm not sure there's a lot of potential for kind of new cinematic stories to connect onto it. But as a standalone piece of work. Um, I, th- I think it's. I remember it being wonderful, and I really want to watch it again. Actually, I, I said that when uh, the more recent film came out, Blair Witch. Yeah, I think that was twenty fifteen. I nearly Something went like to that. see that, but ended up not doing. But I really wanted to just go back and watch the original. So, okay, so that's my first choice. Just to take us on to my second choice, um, I did mention that I, the Blair Witch Project. Although it frightened the hell out of me, I was <laughs> able to go back and watch it and enjoy it. A few times, in a way, maybe because of the Blair Witch Project, I, on my experience with it, I don't expect that would be the case with every found footage movie, um, and that's why I'm actually afraid to watch that many of them because I think <laughs> some of them might just be only frightening and not do the other things about Blair Witch which I thought were charming mm. and interesting. So that's why I've never seen Paranormal Activity, for instance, um, and then and. What links to my next choice is that this is a movie which I've never seen again as well. I only <laughs> saw it the once. So it is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. And I Yay. saw it just a few weeks or a couple of months after seeing The Blair Witch Project because it was banned for a long time in Britain, wasn't it? It was. Um, and I think the ban was lifted in 99 or 2000. Um, and I saw it on its first transmission on Channel 4. Um, with the same friends, actually, with whom I saw the Blair Witch Project, um, but you know, this time at someone's house, and um, we were all pretty disturbed. And um, I would like to use this example of of the line I, I draw between the kind of horror that frightens me that I enjoy, and that frightens me in a way that's not so enjoyable, hence why I've never watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre again. So, a well-done supernatural story, I can, I, I really enjoy being thrilled and terrified by, and I can go back to that, possibly because of the unreality of it, um, depending on one's own uh, kind of spiritual beliefs and things. Um, there's more of a, a buffer where you can think, this story wouldn't really happen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, there's a certain kind of horror where you are encouraged to empathise with people in a horrifying situation and it's just harrowing and it might be wonderf- wonderfully made, but how often do you want to go back to that place and spend more time in that world? And hence, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
Um, I remember being utterly riveted and full of dread, kind of almost from the first frame. Um, as I say, because I've never watched it again, I wouldn't say it's one of my favourite films or anything, but there's such an atmosphere of something's going to go terribly wrong. So um, a bunch of friends are on a, a, a road trip, I think, essentially, and they pick up an ominous hitchhiker, um, obviously in Texas. And even before the hitchhiker comes aboard, who's quite a... Uh, who's quite a disturbing individual, you know, there's just something about the the choice of details that they've chosen to show in the visuals of the the van driving along like you, there's um the shot that sticks in my head is where there is um a dead anteater at the side of the road um there's just a sense of desolation and danger and um a sense that if something goes wrong here you're in real trouble and then this character comes aboard uh, the minibus, who is just jittery and um, uncomfortable to be around. And the movie gets a huge amount of claustrophobic tension about, about the fact that these human human characters, I was going to say, they're all humans. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, these youth characters are a kind of invulnerable, close proximity to this guy. And it's not that the the young people are particularly likable, as I remember they aren't. I don't really remember really liking anyone <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> um, but they're put in a situation that you just wouldn't wish on anyone. And the and the first situation is being stuck in in this van with this guy who uh, soon. Uh, reveals a weapon and uh, I don't really want to go into it but it soon reveals that he is as dangerous as you might suspect he is and then later on uh, the situations that they find themselves in get progressively worse and more entrapping um, and and also the number of young people is uh, incrementally whittled down um, as uh, the the family. Um, I, does do either of you remember what the family are called? Do they even have a name? Um, um, oh, but, I should um, know. I feel so like I they, should know. <laughs> but it, anyway, the villains in this Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as as most people probably know, even if they haven't seen the film, are a family of um, kind of cannibalistic uh, people, <laughs> and uh, and. Uh, they the start to houseworkers, aren't they? Yes, yeah, that's yeah. it. Uh, yeah, um, and who who kind of begin to entrap the youths one by one, and horrible scenes of of torture and victimisation ensue. Yay! Um, <laughs> that I don't really enjoy, but I do remember just being uh, just riveted by, and I was really glad when the movie was over. <laughs> and I was really impressed by by how the been able to do what they did because it's obviously it's a very low budget movie um mm. it's quite unconventional in a lot of ways in the sense that um you know i, f I felt like the lack of a, a, a really likable kind of lead character or characters was deliberate um 
and I thought it was kind of impressive that the film um, was was engaging and kept your attention despite that. Um, and then aesthetic things like the um, the use of kind of atonal music, as I remember that the, most of the music in the movie is not uh, m- melodic or traditional horror music, horror movie music or movie music. Um, really, it's a lot of kind of dissonance um, and music that kind of tells of psychosis and and mm. dread, um, which I found really effective. Um, so I, I don't have a lot to say about it, but I do think that that's probably. I tried to think. What's a movie that I really just wanted to to stop watching? <laughs> and and I think it says something about this movie that I saw it in a friend's house on video. So it's, I could have walked out the room or something, you know, or just stopped it or just said, guys, enough. But I didn't. But I was really glad when we finally got to the end of it. And I, I've never watched any other film with Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the title. Um, although maybe I should. But uh, so uh, yeah, have either of you got anything to say about this particular movie? I love it. <laughs> Again, okay. Uh, it's I mean yeah, all the things that you said. There's a lot of screaming in it, so it's mm. kind of it's quite hard on the ears. I think Texas yeah. Chainsaw. Um, I guess I saw it around the same time because, like you said, it had been banned. And I remember that we got it on video. I think we rented it on video and we watched it in our one of my first university houses, I think. Um, so we were all eager to watch it, you know, watch the film that's been banned, what's it going to be like? And then we were all kind of, I think, possibly a little bit underwhelmed, but I think I liked it more when I studied it on my degree. Mm. And then um, in later years, when I've done more reading and research into uh Serial killers and and wrongens, and I read about <laughs> wrongens. Ed, <laughs> wrongens. Read about Ed Gein, yeah. who Leatherface yeah. is based on, and what Ed Gein was actually up to. So seeing the link between the actual real life person and his, you know, skin suit and armchair with skin on and belts made of nipples and all that sort of stuff. The link between the real stuff and then what's in Texas Chainsaw. I think I yeah. liked it more after knowing the truth as it were again i'm doing air quotes but nobody can see them um and, yeah. and the film so yeah right well yeah um how about you Kirsty? yeah i've only seen it once i have to say um and uh that was actually it it wasn't sort of as soon as it came out i think i probably saw i saw it in the last 10 years but i can't i'm struggling to remember exactly when um okay. And I think I watched it because, again, it was that kind of sense of, oh, this is a really iconic horror piece and one, you know, it's referenced so often that one should see it. Um, However, again, it was sort of like Stella said, I felt a bit underwhelmed by it. I think sometimes when when films come with that level, that, you know, that kind of aura and that reputation of being something that... Yeah, exactly, that it actually... Um, you know, it kind of is slightly underwhelming. I felt the same thing about The Exorcist, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, but a lot of people did. Yeah, yeah. but I think, well, I think because it, it's it's to do with, isn't it, the way in which that you know something is res- responded to in its original context. And I'm sure, in yeah. the, you know, in the 70s, it was massively shocking. Um, yeah. Whereas in a you know kind of 21st century, it's less so. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember a couple of things about it. One is is 
I remember being quite sort of surprised at how light the film was, how much colour. I mean, there's a lot of magic hour yeah. shooting, isn't there? And it's, it's quite beautiful in terms of, aesthetic, you know, the use of light. Um, mm. and it is certainly for a movie of that budget level, it is as, yeah. as well, yeah. And then the other thing that really struck me, and I'm not sure if it's a kind of, I'm sure, Stella, you'll be able to kind of confirm about whether or not there's lots of kind of discussion around the male gaze and misogyny in the movie. Yeah. Let me try and recall. <laughs> yeah, no, I just I just remember kind of at some point I I kind of, I felt like I aligned a bit with Leatherface because I yeah. really wanted Sally to just shut up to stop, so screaming, just to stop yeah. screaming and also i don't know put a bra on because um, <laughs> a lot like of the, the 70s yeah exactly well, a lot <laughs> of the back of the film is is her running around in you know a vest top and not much else um much and screaming a lot and i just yeah. i found that quite draining and yeah. so there were times where i thought just get just get her <laughs> i think just, that the sympathy for leatherface is quite interesting the sort of sympathy for the whole family because they've They've turned to cannibalism because they've they've got no money, they've got no way yeah. of life anymore. And in the second one, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, um, we see how Leatherface is, um, how he's, well, it's clearly mentally unwell, but how he's he's kind of bullied by his family and he has an opportunity in the second movie to sexually assault a woman that he's got trapped and he, he doesn't know what to do. And you can see the panic in his eyes that he's, he's, he doesn't know what to do with her now that he's got her. So there's there's a lot more sympathy towards him yeah. in in the second movie. And may, I don't know, maybe I see more sympathy for them in the first me, movie, having seen the second movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, okay. I think there's something quite p- pathetic, but in the troop, you know, yes. kind of in a pathos yes. sense of, of that kind of the him at the end with his chainsaw sort of, you know, kind of bereft. Yeah, waving it around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, which doesn't which isn't safe, is it? I mean, you no. don't wave a chainsaw above your head. You're not wearing a helmet, mate. Come on. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Yeah, I know that. I've seen the Dawn of the Dead remake. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, you don't want to slip with a chainsaw. No, yeah, or in the back um, of the van. Yeah, where, yeah. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a good bit. That yeah. bit, I like that bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's it stayed with me. I'm sure yeah. we'll be discussing that uh, when we come to talk about. Horror remakes. Yeah. Um, so those are my two. Um, Stella, I think you, you're up for your second movie. Oh, I'm back, movie. aren't I? Right then. Okay. 28 Days Later. Now, so it's nice. 2002. Is it 2002 or 2001? 2002. Two, da- yeah. Danny Boyle. Um, when I was making notes on this this morning, the first thing I've written at the top here is that it's scary and that it's really sad. And I think... Whenever I have watched it again, there's quite a few moments in it where it brings tears to my eyes because it's just so bleak and so sad. Mm. Um, and so anyway, when I saw it when it first came out in 2002, went to the cinema to see it. Um, zombie films were kind of off my radar at that stage in my life. I don't really think I'd watched any. I might have watched Night of the Living Dead, but I don't recall it. Anyway, so I went to see 28 Days Later you got the opening sequence in the lab where the monkey, the angry monkeys are released and they, everything goes wrong from there. And then it just yeah. slips back into the quiet, still, dead London, like London at dawn. They filmed all those moments at dawn, didn't they? So it would be as quiet as possible. Mm-hmm. And it looks stunning. The colours are gorgeous. But it's that 
bloody score <laughs> by John <laughs> Murphy. That slow build of that first oh, sequence yeah. where Jim's realising what's going on and he sees all the missing posters around London. See, I'm talking about it now. My eyes are filling up because it's just so bleak. And then he, mm. it, the song builds and builds and gets faster and faster and he meets Selena and Jim and everybody's running and the zombies are running and Jim's running and the petrol station's on fire. And it's just that build is mm. so intense that in the cinema I was pinned to my seat. And then when we get to Jim's parents' house eventually and he finds he finds his parents in, and uh, it's, I don't, is it a spoiler yeah. if I say what's happened to his parents? Um, uh, Possibly, yeah, no, but I it's, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think anything up to halfway through the film is probably okay. All right, well, all right. Well, Jim finds out that his parents have killed themselves and they're in bed and he reads their suicide note and their suicide note every single time. I'm just like, <laughs> that's so sad. Um, and I've, I've even memorised what it says. The suicide note says, with endless love, we left you sleeping. Now we're sleeping with you. Because when all this kicks off, Jim's in a coma. Yeah, yeah. So I just find that so utterly heartbreaking yeah. that every time I watch it and I have watched it lots and lots of times every time I watch it I find it a really difficult watch and anyway the film cracks on and there's more zombies and there's more more running around and more deaths and I think the main reason that this film frightened me apart from the, the absolutely terrifying running vomiting blood screaming zombies is I think mm. for me at the time it was the first time that I'd considered actual complete world collapse and I was like oh that is terrifying where there's nothing there's no one there to help you the government's buggered off there is literally Mm. nothing there and that's it was that premise that was I found that and its bleakness of there being hardly anyone left is what really sort of what really got to me and then it's of course it's you know it's all done on digital cameras it's got a very indie movie feel to it which i do quite like um and one of the most interesting aspects of it was Danny Boyle's sort of resistance to the word zombie with regards to the the infected as they keep being yeah. called um because he had quite a lot of trepidation over how fox how they were going to market it because from i think from Boyle's point of view it was like well you know zombies are we really going to is that going to do it? Are people interested in that? Turns out they were, and there was the big zombie resurgence after that. Um, sure. So the creatures in it, the infected, they're more like the descendants of Romero's crazies, sort of like plague victim mm. type things, which seems quite pertinent now, if you look out your window. Mm. Um, yep. And then, you know, at the time, not long after 9-11, and people were very, very twitchy about biological warfare. And also, a bit like um, you are talking about with the Blair Witch Project and how it just fit with the the first burst of, of, of internet and people chatting about things on the very, very early social medias, there was the yeah. SARS outbreak at the same time. So rather than movies, oh, yeah. rather than you've been able to see what a movie is being frightened of, you know, a decade or so later, with 28 days later, it was it was talking about the things that were happening now. So that was added to it being really, 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 really scary. And then in the sort of the final act of the film, the the complete breakdown between the humans and the infected and everybody just being completely savage at the end mm. is just it's just brilliant and yeah. yeah and just to just to reiterate John Murphy's bloody score <laughs> for God's sake because so before we started switched on to record this podcast this afternoon I was just testing myself am I still scared of this and I popped it on 
uh, Spotify and it was running for about 30 seconds in my headphones and I was like, no, 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 t- don't want to turn this off now because no, I don't like it. And I was running downstairs going, no, 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 no. <laughs> and my husband's like, you okay? So I've just listened to a bit of 28 Days Later soundtrack and he's like, why, why, why did you listen to that? <laughs> you hate it, turn it off. <laughs> why are you doing that to yourself? So yeah, I love the film. I've watched it many, many times. I've got it on DVD. I might have written an essay about it at university. Um, and it's frightening and I just find it incredibly sad at the same time. And it makes me cry a little bit. Wow. So there we go. Yeah, it's a great movie. Um, I I don't think I've got anything immediately that I could add to that. <laughs> uh, what do you think of that, Kirsty? Uh, I remember I... when we were at uni and this movie came out, and you know we were talking about the. Uh... Sorry, I invited you to speak then, and now I've started speaking. But, I, um, <laughs> but just to say, uh, no, I I remember us being. I didn't see the movie when it was out of the cinema, but I remember us all talking about it. Both because of what the film was, but also because of the um, the DV camera technique. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, so that the, yeah. very interesting to us as um, film students with low budget filmmaking yeah. ambitions. Because the cinematographer um, was um, Anthony Dobb Mantle, who was the DP for Feston, which is the first mm-hmm. Dogma film. Um, oh, I remember right. that okay. you know, kind of. Um, I think he he also did the. He was also DP on um, Some Dog Millionaire as well, and and maybe Sunshine. Um, so yeah, but I, I think oh, Sunshine. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, That's a good one. Yeah. So I I think you know f- um, that that aesthetic does it. it you know, again, uh, as you said, it d- it does feel really sort of contemporary. Um, and again, we've got another film that sort of sits in this point where you know, kind of filmmaking can be lower budget and can, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, and, and so a consequence of that is actually something that feels fresh and exciting and actually much more relevant and mm-hmm. taps into the real world in a much more kind of visceral um, yeah. and kind of uh, voracious way. I, I I mean, you were talking about the, the kind of notes as he's running around, you know, sort of walking around London trying to sort mm. of piece together what's happened. And um, and I remember again, so it's 2002, isn't it, release? Yeah. So that just that sense of how that echoes the, you know, kind of 9-11 yeah. um, kind of aftermath is just really powerful. And I think, you know... I've got goosebumps now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think particularly for, you know, kind of people of our age watching that film when it came out and that being like really, really, you know, kind of part of our, you know, kind of, um, what you call it, our, our, our context at that point in terms of kind of a global sense of kind of dread yeah. and big things shifting. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's a great film to look at as a kind of allegory isn't it for the kind of contemporary world and its problems i mean even the, even if the, the, the the virus is called rage yeah um hmm. and the, the you know the kind of there's an opening montage isn't it that we see that the kind of the chimp is being made to watch in oh, the yeah, lab of all this, down, isn't yeah, it? With all the screens, yeah, yeah just all yeah. this, just kind of global chaos, and that's all you know, kind of do- archive documentary stuff. So it's mm. again, it's really plugged into the into the that you know that two thousand one, two thousand two kind of world. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely, and I think so. It's it's much more powerful and more scary because of that connection to the real, rather than yeah, um, yeah, rather that sense of it being um, you know kind of far away, like you were saying before with. Um, 
uh, with Texas Chainsaw Dan. And the, the other yeah. thing as well that strikes me as well with it is that the the zombies or whatever you want to call them, the infected, are you know they seem like the big monster, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> In the first part mm-hmm. of the film, that that's the big threat that they've got to get yeah. away from. And what I really enjoyed about the film is the way that that twists in the second half and what you realise yeah. is actually, you know, the enemy isn't, or the big threat isn't the, the infected, it's other people. It's other people. Mm. Yeah. And and done so well as well. Yeah, absolutely. Such good performances. Yes, yeah. Christopher well, Eccleston's performance is excellent in that film. He yeah. plays, plays slightly unhinged Yeah, Major guy. West, isn't it? Yeah. Very, very well. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I loved it. Yep. Although, okay. um, you know, and so... I've, I've said before, my husband's not into horror. He came to the cinema with me to watch that, and and he did enjoy it. So there's the odd one, <laughs> um, right? But if you remember it at the at the very very start when Jim's wandering around London and it's quiet apart from this girl, um, and he he touches mm. a car and the car alarm goes off, yeah, and everyone in the cinema <laughs> leapt about a foot off their chair. <laughs> husband's popcorns everywhere. Yeah. It's great, right. great, great, great. Wow. <laughs> um, I'll just mention. I didn't see it at the cinema, as right. I said, um, but I did see 28 weeks later yep. at the cinema, which I, I kind of rate. Um, obviously, I, I like that one too. To, I'm glad to hear that. I don't think it's the place to talk about it here. But, but I do remember the audience reaction being similarly visceral to that. That's one of the best um, examples of, of seeing a movie with an audience that I have. Um, and I saw a movie, I saw that movie on my own, and everybody was so into the film that we started talking to each other even though we didn't know each other. Oh, that's nice. You know, it was like being on a roller coaster, you know, everybody's so <laughs> scared that you're instantly bonded. You're in it um, together. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do love the, the original and I've been meaning for years to sit down and I'd really like to do a double bill of both of those movies because um, I've still only seen it once and I suppose maybe... One of the reasons why I've I've not gone back to it is that I have kind of quite a long-standing love of end-of-the-world narratives. Yeah. Um, maybe not so much now. <laughs> <laughs> they don't seem as fun right now. Um, so therefore, some of the things that that it does, I I was kind of already familiar with from other things. So therefore, mm. I, I I don't kind of uniquely associate with that movie but i do um would like to watch it again because i've forgotten how much heart there is in it um Mm. uh, until you said that stella the thing that i remember being most moved by was what happens to the character played by brendan gleason yeah yeah um yeah yeah it's and also i think it's just a really important movie in the sense that before 28 days later there hadn't been a lot of British horror movies for a long time. Yeah, There's true. Like, there was a couple in the immediately preceding couple of years. Um, but since then, because um, I think filmmakers have become hip to um, techniques of low-budget filmmaking and also technology has made things much easier, there have been, well, loads, basically, far more than I have track of. Um, and uh, and also it's it's got the great legacy of starting off Alex Garland as an original screenwriter mm-hmm. because I think before that he'd he'd written The Beach which was based on his novel but he went from 28 Days Later to Sunshine um, and then obviously to Dread and Ex Machina 
Yeah. And, I, mm. uh, I was actually reading something yesterday. Talking. Sorry, I was actually reading something yesterday, although I didn't kind of look too too deeply into it because it's a, a plan that I have. Um, that, that he directed parts of 28 Days Later. Okay. Yeah. So um, and and also dread apparently as well. But again, he I'm did. Dead. He definitely did on dread. Yeah, um, that's a fact. Um, so he was, you know, kind of developing those skills, kind of as well as being the writer. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it might have been with dread. There was some kind of severe problem between the cast and the director, and Garland had to <laughs> pop in to mediate. But I think maybe yeah. on Twenty Eight Days Later. Danny Boyle just said to him, why don't you direct this bit? Why don't yeah. you direct this bit? Maybe right. he did second unit. Because um, also Danny Boyle did direct bits of 28 Weeks Later, which is, um, you know, mainly done by Juan Carlos mm. Um I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Maybe not, probably not. Um, so, yeah, the, there's, there's interesting kind of threads of creativity running in through there. Does um, you might know this, Kirsty? If you don't, no worries. Um, I didn't check if um, Dodd Mantle and Garland have continued to work together because I know he shot Dread. Yeah, Did he shoot don't Ex Machina think and... so. No, I don't think so. No. Okay, that's a shame because um, yeah. he's an extraordinary talent as well. Yes, so. yeah. Um, oh, and Stella, I, yeah. uh, are you familiar with the 1970s TV series called Survivors? I've heard of it. Um, it was on. I think I meant to watch it or read more about it during my early days of my PhD, but I don't think I got round to it. <laughs> it's great. I right. shall have to um, point you in the direction of that. Survivors. In some ways, I think Twenty Eight Days Later is kind of a mixture between zombie movies and Survivors. Right. Because Survivors mm. is um, an end of the world outbreak movie where. There are no yeah. uh, zombies. It's just everybody catches a cold and dies. Again, it's quite apt, isn't it? Yeah. So, it's again, it's kind of less of fun, fun now. It used to be one of my favourite things because of how bleak it was. What was but, the original um, channel? Uh, BBC survivors. One. Uh, right. Yeah. So, hmm. well, I think the there's quite a lot of it on YouTube. So. Right. I'll have a look. Um, Thanks. No worries. Have fun. Um, mm. First episode's great. Um, if nothing else, watch that. So, uh, yeah, so I think we've just got one more movie to talk about now, Kirsty, and I think that's yep. yours. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about The Descent um, from right. 2005, directed by Neil Marshall, which I think is his second film. Um, first one was Dog Soldier. Dog Again, Soldier. Sh- yeah, Yay. with Sean Pertwee. Um, yep. So, <laughs> so The Descent... Um, it's one of those films that I think in terms of, you know, kind of, I find it actually really hard to pick a second one. Like my first choice, Event Horizon, that was that was a no-brainer. Um, mm-hmm. But the second film was much harder and it was more about thinking about kind of a film that I felt was really effective sort of on its own terms and creating the kind of response in me that I thought Neil Marshall was trying to create if that makes sense um it's kind of been regarded as one of the greatest modern horrors um and it's kind of notable for a couple of different reasons so um it focuses around a group of uh kind of women in their mid to late 20s early 30s um who are um you know kind of deliberately kind of encoded in 2005 as being sort of slightly unusual kind of adrenaline junkies um the film starts Mm. off with them 
uh, white water rafting and the main thrust of the film is them going kind of caving or spelunking um, which is a great word um, <laughs> in uh, in America so the, what's interesting about the film is it's not American it is British it's shot mainly in Britain um, but it appears um, to be set in America and has a kind of international cast so you can kind of clearly see uh, you know producers and stuff going right okay how do we make sure that this sells to a slightly wider audience Um, so uh, the protagonist is Sarah who's a member of this group um, who basically in a very very shocking um, kind of moment in the beginning of the film loses her husband and her daughter um, yes. So we start off with this, you know, horrendous tragedy um, and then a woman sort of, you know, kind of dealing with her grief or not dealing with her grief um, um, at the beginning of the film. So she is taken away um, with her by her group of kind of friends who all enjoy these you know, outdoor pursuits um, into the middle of the nowhere, into a cave system um, somewhere, you know, in a forest in uh, America. Um, and once in the cave... Um, the kind of expedition leader Juno, um, who uh, is you know, not what she appears, um, or you know, kind of makes some quite careless decisions um, around mm. the group and what they're going to do, um, and so they kind of increasingly find themselves uh, in unexpected situations with some unexpected creatures underground. Um, the film does a really, really good job, I think, of creating a really claustrophobic atmosphere. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the um, lighting in the film, for example, is just purely um, kind of diegetic. It's just it's the lights that the, 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 the climbers, or the kind of cavers have got with them as a group. So their flares and their hand lights and the torches on the... Um, uh, on their helmets, um, rather than bringing in, you know, kind of um, additional artificial lights. Um, and that really, I think, is effective at putting us as a spectator in that position of the, um, of w- or with them in these very, very tight um, situations. Um, it's got some really great jump scares <laughs> and some, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, really great kind of use of sort of deep focus to sort of, you know, show us something that the rest, that the group haven't yet noticed noticed um but i think for me a couple of things that really stand out about it and one is again it's that kind of sense of it's the 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 kind of they're they're called the crawlers um at least that's what kind of neil marshall calls them um these you know kind of cave dwelling um creatures essentially the idea is he said that they're like cave you know kind of cave people who never evolved and kind of came out the caves so they're you know kind of um uh, essentially kind of blind bat like kind of humanoid creatures um mm. but they're not actually again the kind of the main threat that comes from somewhere much more familiar ah. um <laughs> and that there's i think there's an interesting reading in the film where you could sort of see them as being the group kind of going into this unfamiliar location and kind of being almost like colonizers um, in that yeah. there's a moment later on in the film um, where our, our protagonist kind of dispatches a young um, crawler um, and uh, there's we kind of uh, Neil Marshall spends some time just with the mother dealing with the grief 
which is a really, mm. really kind of interesting and sympathetic moment in the kind of mm. in, in, in the film, I think. Um, in that oh, sense yeah. that they're, you know, kind of the monsters are, they're just acting out of the need to survive and that they have family relationships and that by, you know, these, you know, these women coming into this situation, you know, essentially they're kind of upsetting that balance that exists within the kind of natural yeah. space. Um, so, yeah, it also kind of has that um, kind of night vision aesthetic that was really popular. Again, coming, I think, coming out of... Uh, was it used in Blair Witch, Dan? I'm not sure. Um, but suddenly we kind of start to get, don't we? I think some of it was. Yeah. yeah. We well, start to it's get like in most haunted early, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of green night vision stuff um, going on. So there's part of that in there. Um, and again, as with... Um, Event Horizon, the ending. The two interesting. There's two different endings. Was the ending for the American audience, which is a little bit brighter. Yeah. And then the ending for the uh, the original ending, as Marshall intended it for the UK audience, which is not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, which is yeah not. yeah. So. Um, I haven't seen the sequel, but I understand the sequel picks up from neither ending. Oh, okay. I, I, I understand it kind of I, yeah. retcons a different ending to go from. Okay, I've, I've not seen the, the sequel, so I can't speak about that. No, um, no, me neither. So There is one, that's all we can say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I want to say it was very nearly one of my choices, The Descent. I didn't see it at the cinema. Um, I saw it a few years later on TV on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, as I remember. Wow. Wow. Um, Festive. I just to sit on, <laughs> sit on my own and watch. Well, I, I, I do have a funny festive thing of, of, of thinking something very frightening is kind of appropriate. Um, <laughs> but, it, yeah, absolutely gripping as hell. And um, things in it that are frightening, that are kind of commonplace. Like, just obviously, I don't know, for me, I'm a little bit um, um, frightened of heights. So just the fact that it's about a bunch of people going spelunking is quite tense. Um, yeah. And there are scenes in it where you've just got an actress hanging by one hand over a massive drop. Yeah. And and the film and the performance really kind of emphasise the muscular pain of just holding onto that position. Um, and it's it's grueling. Um, but also I think it functions as a great monster movie. Yeah. Um, because those monsters are so interestingly characterised and and the combination of the, the design of the monsters and the use of night vision to show them both creates something a number of great shock moments, but also it kind of means you never see enough of the creatures to lose your fascination with yeah. them, which I think yeah. can sometimes yeah, be a problem agree. with with movie monster. So um yeah, that's a great choice. Um would you like to weigh in on the descent, Stella? Um no, I can't. I've not seen it. Oh okay. <laughs> oh, well, um I hope that stands as a, a good recommendation. <laughs> yeah, I remember yeah. I mean it was because of, of what most of my usual problems is that my husband saw the trailer for it on telly and I was like, Oh will we go and watch that? And he was like well, no, absolutely not. So uh, I've just not seen it. And I do actually have it on DVD downstairs. I've got this box set of, I don't know, best horror films or something, um, and it's still in its plastic wrapper. So maybe I'll uh, I'll, have to, I'll watch it on my own because Owen's having none of that at all. <laughs> right, fair enough. But yeah, no, sounds great. <laughs> from my experience, I would say watching it on your own is is possibly the best way to watch yeah. it. Actually, right. Yeah, at well, night, choice, yeah, in, really. in the dark, in as dark, in dark an environment yeah. as you can make it, I would okay. suggest. Yeah, 
Right. Yeah. I'll do Feel that. Feel like you're lost in a cave. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Nice. Okay. One. I'll take oh. a beta blocker first in case it's too much. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, those are wonderful choices. Um, that's great. That that brings us to the end of our survey of our scariest movies. Very quickly, I'd just like to throw in a couple of honourable mentions. I'm not going to elaborate on them too much because we're running out of time. But I did... Other films that I also thought about including were um, El Orphanata, The Orphanage from 2008, J.O. Bayona's film, which is a terrifying example of the cinematic ghost story. Um, the Woman in Black, the, the 1989 TV movie, which... Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so associated with what frightened me when I was eight. Um, I think we kind of covered that stuff with talking about Ghostwatch. Yeah. Um, have you guys got any other films you'd like to mention? That just briefly? Because I know we've all had trouble narrowing it down. The, the only one that I would have stuck on the end is, is not a film, is the ne- recent Netflix uh, 2018 version of The Haunting of Hill House. And not necessarily ah. the whole of the Haunting of Hill House, but the the bent neck lady in particular. That was a definite. Right. Um, I'm not getting up in the middle of the night for a weed situation <laughs> after watching that. So, that's yeah, intriguing. That I'll have to watch that. Yeah, oh, I yeah. had had two two possible other ones. One was um, the Babadook, um, which Ooh. we're going to be talking about in a future episode, um, oh, yes. and also kind of slightly controversially, and I and I yeah um, is uh, Roman Polanski's The Ninth Gate. Oh. oh okay which i just i like i watched it on my own <laughs> late nah. at night not <laughs> expecting it to be what it was at all and it properly creeped me out <laughs> right um i've seen it and I, you make me want to watch it again I, um i think it might be on amazon prime or netflix i've, okay. I've seen it somewhere recently <laughs> so um okay that's an cool. interesting one right nice one so we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I think it's time to do our traditional recommendations for the week, um, and I'll go first if that's okay. Um, because and the reason I want to go first is because the listener will have to act fast to see my recommendation, which is Tremors. It's on the Horror Channel on Saturday, um, which is one day after this drops. So. You've probably missed it, but if you haven't, it's on at half past six. <laughs> and it's a wonderful comedy horror monster movie with Kevin Bacon um, from 1989 um, that I've just seen loads of times and is absolutely wonderful and has yeah. some of the greatest monsters and also some of the greatest one-liners um, in recent movies, I think. So that's mine. Um, how about you, Stella? Um, well, because we were, I'd been thinking about Haunting of Hill House as another suggestion, I was thinking of um, works by Mike Flanagan and his uh, adaptation of Stephen King's Gerald Ge- Gerald's Game, rather, oh, on yeah. Netflix. Um, just a great example of a horror film where it's just, you know, one person in a room and everything that happens to them. And, and while I'm not the biggest fan of King's books, um, I think Gerald's Game, the adaptation of that, on Netflix is really worth a watch. And the actress in that is also in Haunting of Hill House. So that's why I was thinking about that one as well. But it, it, it really does work as a, as a film. Okay. So oh, that's intriguing. Yeah, I've been wanting mm. to check that out. So I haven't seen anything by Flanagan yet. So he's got a whole body of work that I need to he investigate. Does. Mm. 
How about you, Kirsty? So I'm actually not going to recommend a film or a television programme. I'm going to um, redirect you towards um, Tannis. Um, Tannis. Yeah, the podcast, um, which you can find um, via tannispodcast.com. It's also available, episodes are available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts or any, you know, of the big kind of podcast providers. Yeah. Um, there's five, yeah, kind of five seasons. Um it's very much kind of, you know, investigative, serial-esque, um, but kind of Lovecraftian cosmic horror um, with lots of cool. kind of interesting mythology and deeply unsettling tone from the outset. Okay. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, I didn't know about that at all until Me um, neither. we did this episode, so thank you for that. It's okay. That's something I shall certainly love to check out. Wonderful. Right. Well, we've um, we've done some interesting group therapy there. So. <laughs> feel the weight has been lifted. Indeed. Yeah, and um, yes, uh, I'll, I'll feel much more comfortable uh, revisiting certain horrors, whether I'll watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre again. But I might watch one of the <laughs> sequels or remakes. Um, uh, we'll see. So uh, next week, we are going to be all three of us here again, and we're going to be discussing... Something close to your heart, Stella. Uh, yes. Horror remakes. Woohoo. So. <laughs> I'm excited about that. <laughs> uh, me too. And I've been uh, encountering some interesting stuff in preparation for it, so it's going to be a good chance. Yeah. But for now, though, we're disappearing once again for another week. Um, the listener will be able to find us here next week at the same time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your company, Stella and Kirsty. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, we'll um, see you next week. Yeah. See you next week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Kirsty Warrow, Stella Gaynor, and T.D. Velasquez. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at And Now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. And now the podcast stops. <laughs>